Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. All right. Well, thanks, Mom. That was awesome. <laughs> I actually didn't uh, plan for my mom to read the scripture this week, but it fits in perfectly with what we're going to be speaking about uh, today. If you're new with us, uh, you are jumping right into the middle of a sermon series that has been sweet, very sweet, very good, not only for my soul, but I think for many others. We're going through uh, the Psalms. Now, the Psalms, it's the biggest book within the Bible. There's 150 chapters within it, and the Psalms are poetic songs. So if you didn't enjoy poetry much, uh, when you were growing up in school, and, and maybe as you've read through the Bible, you've encountered the Psalms, and you're like, I don't even know what to make, how to make sense of these. The, the whole purpose behind these poetic songs is to engage us in a new way, primarily through prayer, through emotions, giving our heart up to God, and it's a, it's a way for us to understand who God is and what he's done. And we're taking a block of those psalms. They're called the Song of Ascents. That's their little subtitle. They're basically uh, someone after the Jews returned from exile, most likely, gathered these groups of psalms together, kind of like a playlist you'd make on Spotify or Apple Music. They gathered them together around a theme. They described this journey, a journey of going far from God and journeying into his presence, seeking the peace that only the Lord can give. And what's beautiful about these psalms it's not about one person doing this journey. When you read through these, there's always this plural aspect to it, that it's a group of people. It is a family journeying together, seeking the peace that only God can give. So with that, we're going to step into Psalm 127. And this maybe, might be, the one that seems kind of out of place. Maybe one that you look at and like, how does this fit into the journey? What does this mean for us, as, as, for us who are journeying here as the church, journeying to the peace that only Jesus can give? What does that look like? And as you can see at the very top in your Bible, there's, it, they attribute this psalm to Solomon. So we're going to get into that a little bit. Before we start, though, I want to start off with an idea, this idea of hard work, this idea of toil, this idea of what's the point behind the work we do in our lives. You see, in World War II, it was a massive war spreading across multiple countries. And when we hear about war, it's often easy to think about, man, it's the frontline soldiers that are bringing home the victory. But one of the things that honestly brought victory at that time wasn't the frontline soldier, it was the men and women in the factories producing what was needed for the war. In fact, there's this quote that says this, President Roosevelt, who was president at that time in the 1940s, stated often, the most important battle for Americans was the battle of production 
and the United States was, by 1944, outproducing all of its Axis enemies and providing vital military supplies and foodstuff to Great Britain and its Soviet and Chinese allies, who were tying down the great bulk of their enemies, ground troops in Europe and Asia. The labor movement, particularly the industrial unions of the CIO, also made possible the mobilization of over 8 million new female workers and the shift of existing females workers from service jobs to basic industry. So there's going to be a slide that pops up here. These are some of the, the propaganda posters that were put up at that time. And some of you might know Rosie the Riveter um, <laughs> right there on the right. Um, and then on, here on the left, this idea of victory and nonstop work will speed it. You, there's, when you start reading it, you start seeing a nation that really rallied around this idea of the work that they were doing actually mattered. That what I was going to do was actually going to help bring victory. And it was through that that we get what I read about, that the fact that America was able to outproduce its enemies. However, there's another kind of labor as well. There's labor that you can do that's valuable, that's useful, that's actually towards a cause and towards victory. But then, one of the worst things we can do in our life is when we're laboring, putting all this intense energy and effort into whatever we may be doing, and it means absolutely nothing. In fact, you're laboring or working towards defeat, unbeknownst to you, instead of victory. And don't we see this happen in the church all the time? There are moments where there's intense amount of energy and effort, and when it's directed right, it is beautiful, it is powerful, it is spirit-driven, and it is right, and it is good. But we also see times when we put in a lot of energy and effort into good things, into church things, but because of how it is directed and where it's directed to, it means absolutely nothing. And we see this in how Jesus spoke to the Pharisees during his time here on earth. The Pharisees were these good religious people. They did a lot of really good things. But because their hearts were not oriented towards their relationship with the Father, their work ended up meaning nothing. And so what we're going to look at today is that in Christ and through his church, we work and labor for victory and not for defeat. So we're going to look first at the victory conditions of our journey as we journey together towards the peace that only Jesus can offer. And we're going to look at what working for defeat looks like and what working for victory looks like. Before we get into it, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this time. As we gather together as the church, as we gather together as a family, would you guide us? Would you lead us through this psalm? Would we all participate together just looking at this word, opening it up, continuing our worship this afternoon, prepare our hearts for this week as we journey, as we continue the journey, as we're learning how to journey through this life, seeking your peace, Jesus, would you lead us? And would these words just be what carries us through this week? We thank you, Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. So Psalm 127, written by Solomon. Now, if you don't know who Solomon is, he is the son of King David, lived a long time ago. One thing about King David and Solomon is David had this heart behind him. And we actually read, went into this a couple of sermons ago about David and when he established Jerusalem as the capital for Israel. And he brought in the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's relationship. It represented God's presence in Israel. 
Well, what David wanted to do is Israel had been journeying for generations using a, a tent, a series of tents called the, the tabernacle, which was how they communed with God as they were walking through the wilderness. Well, now that they had a place for their nation, now that they had an established capital, they wanted to establish their place of worship. And David wanted to build a place, build a home for where God could come and dwell amongst their people. But God didn't allow David to do that. Instead, God reserved that for Solomon. And this is where this psalm in particular fits so much with what we read in the Song of Ascents. Because for the people before Jesus, the people of God, the Israelites, for them, their journey often was to do pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And why were they doing that? Because it was a center of worship. It was their time to keep their focus and energy and effort on worshiping and praising Jesus. So, the victory condition. What is that? It's, that? it's that thing that you must have in order to achieve or accomplish something. And what was that for, for the Israelites? Well, it was peace with God. Peace with God. That is what they were building towards. In fact, they were given a promise ever since Genesis, the idea that there was going to be a Messiah that was going to come. Someone was going to come and provide that peace with God eternally because what they were left with was the sacrificial system, doing sacrifices to pay for the penalty of sins that they deserved, but it was only temporary and they knew it. So as we journey into this psalm, and we're looking at this victory condition of the peace of God, we see three areas in particular in these five verses where this victory condition is to be met. First of all, there is the house. We see this in verse 1 where it says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Then we see it in the city, represented by a city wall that's there, and that those who are watching, they're watching in vain unless the Lord is doing the watching. And then, in the last part of the psalm, we see the next generation. So these are three spheres, three influences. So let me just dive into each three of those first to help you understand how this not only was valuable for those pursuing God at this time, but how it's valuable for us who are pursuing Jesus now. So first of all, there's the house. In one sense, there is a, a literalness to this. Those who build the house, meaning like the actual family home, the husband, the wife, the kids are in it. There's a building in the sense of that you are having kids, you are pouring into each other, you are developing each other as a family, and also even the sense of that, like having a literal house above you that provides what? It provides security, it provides peace, it provides the needs that you have as a family. But the house also represented, at that time, the temple, where the Lord was as well. And it represented that at the center of the house, the reason that a family can have any hope for peace, the reason that a house can have any type of provision, only happens when the Lord is at the center of the house. And then we see this with the city. So that's stepping out a little bit further. And this is looking at Jerusalem, right? And the city walls that are around it. And what's beautiful about it is what do the city walls do? They protect the families that are within it. And it's also protecting what's most valuable for the city, which is their worship of the Lord. The most valuable thing they can protect is the peace that they have with God. And so the city also for us can represent an aspect of the church as well. 
Think about it for a minute, how throughout the New Testament, there's always these, these warnings, there's these encouragements of how we're supposed to watch out for each other, how we're supposed to pray for each other, how we have to be careful of false ideas, lies from Satan that can infiltrate and lead us away from worship of Jesus. We have to be careful within our own hearts. When you let bitterness and selfishness develop within your heart, it breaks apart our relationships. It exposes us to the attacks of the enemy. And we have seen that, especially in the last three to four years, as um, our political ideologies, as various things have been exposed through COVID and other things, And the question has been, are we going to hold to Jesus through all those things or are we going to let them rip us apart as the church? So just like the city walls of Jerusalem protected them from enemies who were coming after them, we also are called to protect each other as the church. We're also called to develop each other as families together. And then the last one, the last fear is the next generation. This is a tough one as you read about children. And I was reminded uh, in our time of prayer at three o'clock today that there are many who desire to have children or some who don't have children. There are some who don't want to have children. And so it can be very hard when we get to this part of the passage wondering like, am I supposed to have kids? Am I, am I somehow broken or removed from this if I, if I don't have kids? And I want to encourage you in this thought. Is the intention here is the next generation of those who are pursuing and coming to know Jesus. Meaning, maybe you're in that place of sorrow where you're wanting kids and you haven't been able to have them. Maybe you're in that place where um, maybe you do have a lot of kids. Whatever station you are in relation to children, we all have a responsibility when it comes to the next generation. We're a family here by the blood of Jesus not just by physical blood alone. We are all responsible for raising up the next generation, and not just of kids, like physical kids, but also kids who have just come to know Jesus, meaning if you're new in the faith, that you are also being developed, that you are also being raised up, so that as you mature in Jesus Christ, you're looking for the next person that you are discipling. You're looking for that. And I I want to speak specifically even to you if you're here and you're, let's say, under the age of 18 and maybe it's hard to listen to a sermon or listen to scripture, I want to encourage you. You're also responsible for the kids who are younger than you. You're responsible for demonstrating what Jesus is like. You're a part of this. We're all working this together to see the victory condition happen, which is peace with Jesus, peace amongst each other, peace in the next generation, peace in our church, peace in our city. The safety, security, prosperity, and wholeness of the city directly correlates to the presence of God and the relationship with God. Notice that. The city and the home and the next generation become the means for God's peace to radiate out into a broken and fallen world. And what we're looking ultimately forward to is when Christ returns. In Revelation 21, 3 through 4, we read this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be with his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
This is the end result that we are looking for. This is the whole point behind us investing in these different areas. And the reality is, is that work cannot be done unless it is the Lord who is doing it. So with that as a way, as an introduction, let's look at two ideas. One is, is labor and work when it's used for defeat, and the other is labor and work when it's used for victory as we seek for us to have peace with God and for others to know the peace that can only come through Jesus. So let's look at the first two verses of Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Notice that there is work, there is activity going on. There's people building, there's people watching. The work doesn't go away. We're all gonna be working at some point. The question is, is our work valuable and does it actually matter? You see, Solomon, and if, if you read through the psalm, it has tones very similar to another book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes. He was not only familiar with the faults of his nation, but also his own faults. See, if you read Ecclesiastes, you can see a man who's walked through all of life. He experienced so much. He, had, he was wealthier than probably anyone else in the world at that time. He relationally had many women that he was involved with, so he could have held up a little pride sticker there for himself. But that, all that, the relationships, the, the, the money, and even being a wise person, and all these things, like by the world's terms, he had it all. And yet when he writes Ecclesiastes, it's this very much written in such a way of saying like, it didn't matter. It was all pointless. It was all vain. And he came to this conclusion by the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. See, what he's getting at at the end here is, look, you know, in the end, everything that I did, all that it comes down to is my relationship with God. That's what it all comes down to. And it also brings up this idea of, like, who are we going to come to at the end of life? We're going to come before God, and we're going to be weighed before him. And the thing is, is are our works going to mean something, or are they not? And if you're sitting there being like, man, well, if I look at my works, they're probably not going to mean too much. Well, where we're going to go is, is that it's not about your works as much as it is about the work that Jesus did for you. So as we look, and that's where the relationship part is key. That's where our dependence upon the Lord is necessary and vital. Think about the nation of Israel. Every time they humbly followed God and they came into contact with an enemy, they would do work, they would get ready for war, they would do the actual fighting. But who was it that provided the victory every single time? It was the Lord. And what happened when they dismissed God, when their relationship wasn't focused and centered on God, when either they grew lazy in pursuing him or made themselves the center of their, the center of their story, all their efforts 
It became meaningless. That's why we read in uh, Hosea 6.6, it says, For I desire love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. Now, don't get mistaken. What's not being said here is don't do sacrifices or don't do burnt offerings for those who are in the Old Testament. No, what it's saying is, is your sacrifices and burnt offerings don't mean a thing if your heart isn't mine, if your heart isn't in the right place, if you're not pursuing me. And so when we get off track, when Jesus isn't the center of our life, where our relationship is found, it produces this rotten fruit of anxiety within our life. And honestly, this is one of the indications of when we're putting effort in the wrong direction is because anxiety becomes a fruit. Without the Lord's direction, we become like the rest of the world. I mean, we can work long days and nights. We can do good things like providing for our family and doing all these things. But without the Lord's direction, where does the weight of life rest on? Us, me, you. All of a sudden, we're wearing the burdens of everything, and it shows often through anxiety. I, I, I know there's been times in my life when I'm not focused and centered on Jesus, and I have the weight of my world resting on my, my shoulders. It physically comes out. I'll have these just, I can feel nerves in my body that are going off because I'm, I'm anxious, and I'm wondering what's going to happen in the future. And think about what causes anxiety. I, I grabbed this from Psychology Today, a magazine. It says, the true cause of anxiety is being a human being, gifted with the capacity to imagine a future as a mental state of apprehension about what might or might not lie ahead. Anxiety reflects uncertainty about future circumstances, whether regarding one's own health, job, or love life, or climate change, or a downturn in the economy. It can be triggered by events in the real world, an upcoming doctor's visit, relationship conflict, a rent increase, or generated wholly internally through thoughts of real or imagined threats, not knowing what to say when the boss calls on you in a meeting. Now, what do we do with that? Have you been there? Have you been there in one of these categories? I have, where these things become the weight that's on, on, on your shoulders. And in one sense, the beginning of this statement is true, where they say the true cause of anxiety is being a human being. Yes, in a fallen world, it is true. When our lives are not centered on Jesus who promises to be our peace. And maybe you're here today and you don't have peace with God. You don't have a relationship with Jesus. Often our anxiety is a reflection of the deep corruption that comes in our world because we've sinned and rebelled against a good and loving God and that's the product that comes from it. When you go back to the beginning in Genesis, when Adam and Eve um, rebelled against God, believed a lie, welcomed sin in, it brought death. It brought death, and not just a physical kind of death. It was a death that resonated and corrupted everything. And so are you looking for peace today? The only place you're going to find it is in Jesus Christ. See, in Romans 5, 1 through 2, it says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
Jesus is our means of peace. Why? Because he did all the things that we could not hope to do. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And then he died bringing all our brokenness, bringing all our anxiety, bringing all the things upon him so that we could claim his work. So that we could say, but for the Lord, unless the Lord does this, I've got no hope. But because of Jesus, I have all the hope in the world. So what does this mean? When it comes to this idea of like, how do we labor? How do we work so that it's not in vain? How do we do that? You know, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says this. He was a preacher back in the old days. Of every church and every system of religious thought, this is equally true. Unless the Lord is in it and is honored by it, the whole structure must sooner or later fall in hopeless room. Or put in Hebrews 2, 12 through 13, in the, in the Bible, it says this, Take brothers, lest there be any of you an unbe- evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the le- living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, what do we see from these things? It all comes back to the relationship with Jesus. Whether it's you starting your faith, but also as we work today in the world, as you're going about your day job, as you're doing work for the church, as you're doing work in your family, as you're walking through the day, there is a call to trust in Jesus and not believe the lies of Satan in this world. So, working for victory. Let's read the last part of this psalm, starting in verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the, blessed, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. At first, this second part of the psalm seems so disjointed from the other one. It's like, wait a minute, he's talking about walls. He's talking about building a home. And then now, he, all of a sudden, he's talking about children. Like, how, how do we wrestle with that? What, how does this even work together? And here's the answer. For us, as we journey towards the peace that Jesus has to give, as we go through this journey of life, walking with Jesus, the next generation is our task. Discipleship is the means by which we not only build the house when you think about the family of God and the church, it's, it's, it's the way we build the house, but it's also the way we watch the walls. Like, this is what's so critical. The next generation, the reason we do discipleship is because in relationship, we are supposed to invest in discipleship of each other. And it mimics what Christ did for us. It's by his, our relationship with him, by his gospel changing our heart, that we are able to then invest in others and disciple others. So building your home, watching the walls of our city, of our church, primarily happens in the raising up of the next generation. It's our investment in discipleship. And notice this, where it starts off in verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage, or you could replace that word with inheritance, from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. You see, we have a longer direction as followers of Jesus. It's not just about your life here in this earth. You affect others. 
You are engaged with others in pursuing and pushing them towards Jesus. You see, it's through the next generation that not, not only that the kids take care of you when you're older, but it's also them who carry out the mission and the values into the next generation. And this is where I just want to take a moment to honor my mom, my dad, who happened to be here. It's a sweet thing to be able to have your parents and to be able to be an elder and a pastor to them. Like, that's amazing. That's beautiful. But it's also a reflection of faithfulness on their part to develop me and to disciple me within the home. And so now, because they've invested me, I'm able to invest in them right now, even as we are preaching through the word. And I hope to do the same thing with my kids, to be able to invest in them, to grow in them, so that they are able to carry the mission and values into the next generation. Why is that valuable? Because remember, our victory objective, our victory condition is peace with God, not only for ourselves, but for the whole world. When Jesus instructed his disciples before he left, he said, what? Go into all the world and make what? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Jesus and teaching them to obey all things. That's what it says in in Matthew 28, verse 16. And so the next generation carries that on. And like I said before, you can get caught up in just thinking of your physical kids or maybe feeling discouraged if you don't have physical kids. And that's where I want to encourage you to not only just keep crying out for Jesus if that's your heart to have kids, but also see the opportunities around you of investment that God has called you to right now, that there are opportunities in this body, in this family for you to invest in the next generation. Discipleship is our labor for victory. So look at the next verse in verse four. It says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So Solomon is taking this metaphor and he means for it to be very intentional. Notice how the term warrior is used. What is a warrior? It's someone who is battle-hardened, who knows what they're doing in a fight. They know their way around their weapons and what they're using. And so the first encouragement I want to give you in, the, in our discipleship is, are you trained? Are you actively taking responsibility for your discipleship in Jesus? Are you engaging yourself in becoming a trained warrior for God? Do you know what that looks like? That our enemy is not of this world. Our enemy is against Satan and his lies and the death and destruction that he's brought in. We are supposed to become well trained. It says this in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So I want to encourage you this week. If you've got, I encourage you to take at least 10 to 20 minutes this week. At some point, grab this psalm, Psalm 127, read through it, And even before you read through it, just take a couple of minutes to to quiet your mind. 
Because we've got so many distractions in our life and in our world that are constantly going through our mind. Just take a little bit of time, quiet yourself, and then as you read through the psalm, ask how you need to be developing yourself as a follower of Jesus, to be a warrior for him. This is something that I even realized is when I grew up in the church, I often looked at things like reading my Bible and prayer in a very like, legalistic way. And this is where effort is done that doesn't really matter. It's when you make yourself the center. It's when you make Bible reading and prayer uh, about you and about your pride and about uh, like looking good for others. Like That's not going to help you. In fact, it's, it's probably going to keep you from hearing truths that you need to hear from God's word. But when we're in the right light, when we come humbly for God, when we're really wanting to be with him and have him influence our life, when we're in that place of humility of like, God, I need you to make this journey. I need you to find peace. Then prayer, Bible reading, fasting, meditation, all these things become ways for God to speak to your soul. So when we train and equip ourselves, it's not to be legalistic or to prove ourselves. It's because we're so in desperate need of Jesus. And so I want to encourage you. I put out a couple of documents. And when we wrapped up our men's event, I encouraged men to get spiritually fit. That many of us, it's hard to even daily read the Bible, daily be in prayer, um, let alone some of the other things that God has given us to do, fasting and all these other things. And so I wrote um, a couple of things. One is just a way through um, the end of December to engage in some of these rhythms of being with Jesus. Um, so you'll see an Excel document that's printed out, and it's kind of like a calendar. The second one is if you've never done regular Bible reading, done regular prayer, there's a little a sheet of helps where it's like, I don't even know where to start. That will help you. It's rough, but it'll at least get you, get you going. And with that in mind, to keep in mind, like, I need to be a trained warrior, ready to equip and disciple the next generation. And that's where the second part of this metaphor comes through. The second part is we intentionally work and craft the next generation for God's glory. And that's where the arrows come in. If you're familiar with ancient warfare, if they, they didn't have factories like mass producing things like arrows or other weapons. They had to handcraft them. Either the warrior himself had to do it or, um, and I don't know for sure at this time, but there, there was someone specifically with that job called a Fletcher who would craft each arrow, why? to make sure that it flies straight because you're not going to take out your enemy if you've got a bad arrow that's going to go a different direction. So the arrow is intentionally crafted to go the place that the warrior is shooting it. And how beautiful is that as a metaphor for discipleship? When we invest in others who are new to the faith, when we invest in young people to be uh, for Jesus, guess what? You are creating the next generation of warriors who will take the battle to the enemy. First Timothy 6, 11 through 12 says this, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. See, First Timothy is this letter in the Bible written by a guy named Paul to one of his disciples who was Timothy, and he treats it very much like a father to a son. Now, was Timothy his physical son? No, but he was a spiritual son, and he invested a ton 
into him so that he could give this exhortation to him because now Timothy was leading his own church and Paul was right there to be like, yeah, I'm gonna keep encouraging you. I'm gonna keep investing in you. And so we also are called to do the same thing. We want to be so good at discipling that whoever uh, we're engaging with as a family, as a church, that we are creating these finely honed arrows that are gonna be sent out to do battle with the enemy during the week, during the next season, during the next generation. So this is the second thing I wanna encourage you in. A second time to get away this week for 10 to 20 minutes and do the same thing. Quieting your mind, reading through the psalm, and then ask another question. Who am I supposed to disciple? Who has God put in my life that I need to be discipling and raising up to be more like him and acting more like him? And here's the beautiful part. Be willing to ask God, like, how am I supposed to do it? Let him be the one who's directing you. Sometimes, well-intentioned, we can just rush into things and be like, all right, I've got all these plans and I'm ready to go. One of the hardest things to do is just be like, Jesus, help me. I need your help even to do discipleship well. The, the last question is then, who is discipling me? Sometimes we get locked into a place where we get isolated, where we get alone, and that is the most dangerous place to be. And honestly, that happens up here in Alaska quite easily, especially during the winter months. It's hard to be discipled. So start praying, and that's, that's what we did earlier when we were praying. Just ask, Jesus, please bring someone into my life. And he may put someone on your mind that then you need to have the courage to be able to go to them and say, like, I need help. Please help me. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to do this. Would you please help me? And then what do we see at the end of this psalm? He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So when we make this effort of discipleship, when we're laboring for this kind of victory, there's this imagery that's put in here that is so powerful. See, if you imagine the, the walls of a city, the weakest point is where the gates are. You have to have gates. You can't just wall yourself off. You're not going to get food. You're not going to get people able to come in. There's not going to be any commerce or anything like that. And so there has to be a gate. And that's exactly where the enemy is going to come at you when an army comes to invade. And this kind of concept of speaking with your enemies in the gate is if you can imagine like this enemy surrounding the city and then they send a couple of people to come and, and talk with you. They're probably going to say something like, yeah, are you ready to surrender? Because we're going to come in and bust the gate down. So imagine for a minute, imagine for a minute, a man who's walking out there, who's spent the time investing in other warriors, along with the whole city. They have been working intentionally for this moment, trusting in the Lord, but doing the work that he's called them to putting in work for victory rather than work for defeat. And they come out where it's like, yeah, we might be lesser than this horde of enemy out here, but you don't know who I've got behind my back. You don't know the people that I've been putting time into, and you don't know the God that I serve. Yeah, come at my walls because you're going, you're going to be the one going down. You're going to be the one to face defeat. This is what discipleship does. This is why it's what we are about as a church here at Radiant. We don't simply want people to come in just to a Sunday, but this is valuable too. 
This is essential for our faith, for our discipleship to come, to read God's word together, to be able to worship, to center ourselves on the gospel before we go back into the battles that we are going to face this week. But we also need to be discipling each other throughout the week. It's one of the reasons that when we start as a church, we started with the idea that we wanted small groups or gospel communities to be um, to be a base for what we do, that we're discipling each other, not just on a Sunday, but throughout the week, that we have relationships with people that are more than an inch deep because we are at war. And guess what? The church here in America is waking up to the fact that we're at spiritual war, something that's beyond politics, something that's beyond everything, but we have to wake up to the fact that there is a war, and so we need to work like it. We need to do work that's of value, work that's centered on Jesus Christ and his work, work that is centered on discipleship. So that just like those posters that we saw, we get the mission. We know who we're fighting. We'll do everything that it takes together as a family to see the victory condition met, which is peace with God, not just for ourselves, but for those who are still lost, for those who are still captive to the enemy, those who are still without peace. We want to see them have peace. And so I want to encourage you. There's, there's ways that you can get plugged in for what we're doing as a church, many different ways. But one of the most important ways is with our kids. And Mike mentioned that before I came up to preach, that we have need for people to teach kids. And here's the thing. It's not so we can keep this little mechanism of the church going. No, the intent is this, this passage right here, that we are developing the next generation. In fact, one of my hopes in, uh, for this next year is other people are coming in and preaching and, and when, when I'm not, that, that I have time where I'm in there with my kids and investing in your kids for the next generation. And I encourage you, if you've got the ability to do that, our hope is that if we get enough people serving, in doing that, that we've got a regular rotation going on so that it's not something that you're like locked into or chained down by, but something that we are doing together because again, we know who the enemy is and we're working and laboring together. In fact, what's great is some of the most faithful people working back there are my parents, the Sagonises, some of those who um, have more life experience behind them and they are serving. They're sacrificing. They're pouring into our kids, and they're serving as an example for us. And so I encourage you, like, let's do that together. But see it as a vision beyond that. That it's not, again, just investing into our direct families or our immediate families. It's investing in our church family. It's investing into even this city, this city that is filled with a ton of darkness, and they need the peace of Jesus. And so we fight and we fight through discipleship, not because we're anything great, but because Jesus is great, because he went to the cross on our behalf, because he's the one who discipled us, who led us to peace. So as we close up, we do communion every single week. This is a beautiful rhythm. This is a time for us that we are training ourselves by taking communion. Why? Because it's through communion that we remind ourselves of the work that Jesus did for us, that we can say out loud, unless the Lord builds the house, our, our work doesn't mean much. Unless the Lord watches the city, our, us staying awake doesn't do much. But it's by Jesus 
that we have the means to have peace with God. So I encourage you, as you come and you take communion, remember why Jesus' body was broken. Remember why his blood was shed. Pour your heart out to him. And maybe for you, it's looking at your life and wondering, okay, you know what? I've realized that a lot of work that I've been doing has been in vain. It hasn't been with Jesus as the center. This is a beautiful time to come, confess, pour your heart out to God, and remember that he is the one that needs to be at the center. He's the relationship that makes all this work. Or maybe it's in praise. Maybe you have been working hard at relationship. I know that many of you have been. And it can get discouraging. It can get frustrating. And sometimes we feel like, is this worth it? Or is it just in vain? If Jesus is still at the center, it is worth it everything. And maybe you just need to cry out to to Jesus in your tiredness and remind yourself that he's the strength underneath you and ask him to be your guide and to lead you. So I encourage you, communion's for those who've put their faith in Jesus. And if you're here today and you're wondering, man, how do I get that? How do I get Jesus? I'd love to talk with you about that. I'd love to show you about the peace of Jesus, how he brought peace into my life. Let's close in prayer. God in heaven, we thank you that there is the ability to have peace in you. Jesus, we just ask. We know that it's so easy to get off track, especially in this distracted world where we just start putting in the hours. We feel tired. We feel exhausted. And sometimes we've gotten off track. We've forgotten who we're working for. We've forgotten why we're working for it. And we've forgotten the gift of the gospel in our heart and where we're supposed to bring it. And I just pray, Jesus, refresh us right now restore us, remind us of our purpose. It's not up to us, but you invite us into the work to work with you to see peace move out into the, dark, the darkness of our city. So God, would we intentionally invest? I just pray over this next year, Jesus. Would, we just, um, would you stir our hearts to invest in the next generation, whether that's younger people or whether that's new believers, or whatever it might be, or maybe it's people who are older than us, Jesus, where we need to be locked into those relationships, pouring in, praying for people, checking in on them, and locking arms together because, Jesus, you've granted victory because of the cross. You said it is finished. You have provided the pathway for victory. So all the efforts we put, all the investment we put into you is it's going to be worth it, Jesus. So I just pray that we'd even believe that in our hearts. Thank you, God, for this family. Thank you for Radiant. We just pray even over our other Radiant churches that we are working with to see discipleship spread across Alaska and beyond. God, encourage them. And would they be able to smile today um, and put the energy and effort that they have as, as human beings towards the right purposes in you. We pray this in your name, Jesus.